Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture, Chapter 9, Sparta. Separating Reality from Mirage by Noreen Humble Tonight we dine in hell is a phrase memorably uttered in the 2006 movie 300 by a bare-chested, red-cloaked Gerard Butler playing King Leonidas as he gets ready to lead his small band of fierce Spartan soldiers against the mighty Persian hordes. The movie, based on the graphic novel of the same name by Frank Miller, focuses on a battle fought at Thermopylae in 480 BCE between a small Greek force against a massive invading army. The battle was a resounding defeat for the Greeks, who, numbering around 7,000 at the start, held back the Persian army for three days and were defeated only when the Persians discovered a way to attack them from behind. Though they all could have escaped before being surrounded, our earliest extant source for the battle, Herodotus, tells us that 300 Spartans and 700 thespians stood their ground and perished there in battle. The phrase is a modern concoction and has had a remarkable afterlife in YouTube clips and memes. It encapsulates the way in which Spartans appear in contemporary media. Graphic novels, movies, and video games all depict them as ruthless, bloodthirsty warriors from whose maniacal visages war cries emanate and who were frequently surrounded by lots of red blood, their own and their victims, because killing is their trade, and taking down as many as possible as they fight to the death is second only to that. This relentless focus on violence, blood, and killing bears all the hallmarks of our own cultural preoccupations rather than being an authentic representation of the world of the ancient Spartans, a fact particularly obvious in the world of video games, where these themes predominate whether or not Spartans are involved. War was certainly endemic in the Greek world, But were the Spartans really wholly and solely preoccupied with it? Was Sparta, above all, a militaristic state? Introduction To the casual observer, looking at both the way in which Sparta has been appropriated in popular culture over the past century and at concurrent scholarly investigation, the answer to the question above would have to be yes. Most of Sparta's apparent idiosyncrasies were explained in relation to this one fact. For example, by the 7th century BCE, Sparta had gained vast territory by conquering the Greek population in the southern Peloponnese, completely enslaving a great proportion of them. In order to keep this newly enslaved population, the Helots, under control, for in this view there was a constant threat of Helot revolt, the Spartans radically adapted their social institutions so that all male citizens, Spartiates, were freed from traditional occupations and trained by the state solely to be a warrior class. The Battle of Thermopylae thus proved that the Spartan system produced soldiers superior to the rest of the Greeks. As is common in warrior societies, the state also allowed its citizen women more leeway than found elsewhere, a point that is invariably noted with censure in non-Spartan sources and which emphasizes Sparta's exceptionality. The fact that discussion of Sparta has been relegated 
to its own chapter in this volume is an indication of how bound we are to this traditional view and how much we still automatically read the Spartans as different as other. Yet over the past 25 years, an increasing number of scholars have been arguing that the traditional view is not nuanced enough. Thus, the same evidence used to produce the view above might also be read as follows. Yes, Sparta slowly gained control over the southern Peloponnese and enjoyed much of the conquered population as agricultural serfs, but there is little evidence of a constant threat of revolt by the enslaved population. The one major revolt, circa 464 BCE, and a minor conspiracy, circa 398 BCE, both seem to have had as their ringleaders not the helots, but other free inhabitants of the polis. Nor was the strict education system set up solely to produce warriors, but rather to instill certain civic virtues. 300 Spartans may have stood their ground and fought to the death at Thermopylae, but so did 700 Thespians. And the picture of out-of-control women is a product primarily of wartime propaganda rather than an accurate representation of reality. Both of the above sketches, which can usefully be referred to respectively as exceptionalizing and normalizing, are based on the same evidence. They result in different pictures from the application of different filters. Neither is unproblematic, and both increasingly use sophisticated comparative and theoretical approaches to try to squeeze a more accurate picture out of the meager ancient evidence. What follows will show how these conflicting approaches affect interpretation of the source material and how this scholarly rivalry has resulted in a much more complex and nuanced picture of this Greek polis, which has never stopped being a source of fascination in one way or another since it collapsed in the 360s BCE. Geography. The urban, such as it is, center of Sparta, was in the fertile Eurotas Valley, about 500 kilometers from the sea and just east of the lofty Tegetis Mountains, which split the southern Peloponnese into two regions, Laconia and Messenia. Fertile plains and rocky Greece were few and far between, but Sparta could boast two, the Pamisos Valley in Messina and the Eurotas Valley in Laconia. The climate overall was not much different from that in Athens, but the much larger and more diverse topography of the Spartan polis supported a wider range of arboriculture, cereal production, and animal husbandry. Part of the reason Sparta evolved differently politically and socially, particularly from its great rival Athens, goes back to the way in which the polis emerged in the early Archaic period. Tradition had it that inhabitants of four villages in Eurotas Valley came together in the 8th century BCE to form what came to be Sparta. The dual monarchy, on the best explanation, arose during the Sinoicism of these villages, when the two royal houses, the Agiads and the Europondits, of the two most prominent of the four villages made a deal to rule jointly. A fifth village, Amiclae, several kilometers to the south, was incorporated into the polis not long afterwards. By the end of the 7th century BCE, however, after the two Messenian Wars, this association of five villages had control of the whole of the southern Peloponnese area, an area of about 8,000 square kilometers. The size of Athens, by comparison, was only about 2,500 square kilometers. Furthermore, instead of the conquered peoples being incorporated into the citizen body, they were either subjugated or enslaved, being known thereafter by the respective terms perioikoi and helots. 
What criteria were used to determine who should receive perioikic status and who became a helot are unclear, but it appears that while there were helot communities in Laconia, the majority lived in Messenia. And while there were perioikic communities in Messenia, the majority lived in Laconia. The citizen body, meanwhile, was confined to the small area encompassed by the original five villages. Demography, take one. Comparative numbers for these constituent groups are difficult to estimate and, of course, do not remain static over time. Nonetheless, it is important to make some general observations since the striking aspects of Spartan civic life, and especially its supposed militarism, have traditionally been explained as the state's response to the problem of managing the helot population. Attention has tended to focus on the Spartiate to helot ratio. The best evidence comes from troop mobilization figures and other scattered comments provided by non-Spartan historians. It is hardly adequate. Not surprisingly, therefore, estimates have ranged widely, roughly between 1 to 7 and 1 to 20, with recent scholarship, which draws on more sophisticated comparative studies, leaning toward the lower ratio. The numbers of the perioikoi, however, cannot be left out of the picture. Herodotus tells us that there were 10,000 Lacedaemonians in the Battle of Plateau in 479 BCE, of whom 5,000 were Spartiates and 5,000 perioikoi. These figures suggest that perioikic numbers at the time were roughly equal to Spartan citizen numbers. Certainly the ratio of freemen to helots within the Spartan polis is dramatically reduced by adding in the number of perioikoi, and any group threat posed by helots possibly reduced as well if the perioikoi were complicit in maintaining the hegemony of the Spartiates. This picture, however, still does not allow for the likelihood that the perioikoi themselves had chattel slaves, the possibility that the Spartiates also had such enslaved workers, or take account of the other free but subordinate groups that made up Spartan society. This is not, therefore, nearly enough demographic data to come up with anything approaching accurate figures, so any assessment of population dynamics must be viewed as provisional but it is still important to speculate about the possible permutations, particularly in view of the reputation Sparta had for political stability. Lycurgus and political stability. One thing that contemporary sources agree on is that Sparta had become politically stable much earlier than other Greek states, and remained so for a remarkable period of time, over 400 years. Herodotus attributes this to changes put in place by Lycurgus, whom he places in the mid-9th century BCE. To the dual kingship already in place, Herodotus reports that Lycurgus added the Ephorate, a yearly magistracy, five in number, and the Gerosia, a council of elders. Lycurgus is at best a shadowy figure, as Plutarch's biography shows, but that of course made it easier to attach all subsequent changes to him. While not all later sources agree with Herodotus about how or when these changes occurred, they do all agree that stability came about because these political groups provided just the right combination of checks and balances on each other. Herodotus also noted that Lycurgus reorganized the army, instituted the common messes, and made fundamental changes to the laws. What Herodotus meant by this can't be known for certain, but Later sources such as Xenophon and Plutarch attribute all manner of societal reforms to Lycurgus. Notably, however, sources 
rarely suggests that controlling the helots was a reason for these reforms. This need not exclude the possibility that it was the reason, of course. But if it was, contemporary sources did not consider it worthy of comment. As with so much of our material from the ancient world, the focus is almost exclusively upon the small number of male citizens. But, as will become clear, whether it was the cart or the horse, societal reform in the upper classes had repercussions for the lower classes. Societal Structure As noted, it is typical to speak of the inhabitants of Sparta as divided into three groups, according to the degrees of rights they had within the polis. 1. The Spartiates, the citizens. 2. The Perioikoi, the free men but without any right of holding office or voting. And 3. Helots, the enslaved portion with no rights. Though the focus below will be on the roles each of these groups played in the social and economic life of Sparta, this tripartite division masks the far greater complexity within the system that we know existed, even if we were unable to understand it precisely. For example, helots who volunteered for military service could win their freedom. The earliest reference to this is in 421 BCE. These freed helots were called Neodemodius. Further, Spartiates, who for some reason or other fell short of their obligations and lost their citizen status, were called Hypomiones, the inferiors. We know little about the status of these two groups vis-a-vis the Perioikoi. On the other hand, it also appears that some disenfranchised citizens could regain full Spartiate status. Three influential military leaders in the 5th century BCE Callicraditis, Gylippus, and Lysander are categorized as Mothics, who on the best explanation were sons of poor or disenfranchised citizens who somehow managed, perhaps through the sponsorship of a citizen family, to attain citizenship by completing the state education system. Then there are Nothoi, who were probably sons of helot women and Spartiates, and who also may have gone through the state education system, though whether or not they were able to attain full citizenship status is unclear. While details about these latter groups are frustratingly vague, it is important to note, since they provide evidence that there was complexity and mobility within the social strata in Sparta. Helots Whether or not the helots are the single most important fact about Sparta is a much debated point. Whatever side on the issue one takes, However, there is no question that the fortunes of the helots were intimately bound with those of the Spartiates. Though some helots labored as domestic workers, their single most important role in the economic structure was to work the land owned by the Spartiates. It is thought that, particularly in Messenia, the people kept on working the land they had been working pre-conquest, but no longer as free men. It is also being cogently argued that for the most part, they were likely attached to a particular land holdings and were a self-perpetuating population, so that even if ownership of the land changed, as it must have done regularly, helot groups generally remained in the same spot. The land the helots worked had to be sufficient to supply both themselves and the Spartiate owner's needs, the latter of which included monthly contributions to his public dining hall, the Sisetion. Keeping estates from fragmenting and becoming too small, therefore, was necessary for the subsistence of both the helot population and the Spartiates. Impoverished Spartiates meant impoverished helots. 
recent work using comparative data from other sharecropping systems has suggested that, for the most part, the helot population cannot have lived much above the bare subsistence line. Whether they did so reluctantly or with varying degrees of complicity is, however, a point of debate. Perioikoi and other free non-citizens As far as we are able to tell, the Perioikoi seem to have been left reasonably free to live their lives. They could own property and people and hold down a profession. Indeed, given the ban on Spartiates engaging in professions and the prime role of the helots as serfs, either working the land or in the households, the Perioikoi played an essential role in trades and professions. While they had no political voice within the broader polis of Sparta, they would likely have had local political structures in their own communities. Their prime obligation as a dependent population seems to have been to provide troops for the Spartan army should the polis embark on war. Though they were not involved in the decision-making process, there do seem to have been efforts to integrate them into the military hierarchy to give them a stake in maintaining the status quo. For example, a perioikos is found in command of a Spartan-led naval force in 411 BCE. But this may have happened more out of necessity since the period for which we have evidence of such appointments is when citizen numbers were starting to become problematically low in Sparta. What we do not know is whether the hypomenoines or neodemonotes, ever entered the workforce in the same way. If neodemonotes were allowed to settle where they likely were being manumitted, presumably they did not all necessarily return to a life of farming. Further, if there was any hope of regaining full Spartiate status, a hypomion would presumably not further sully his chances by resorting to a trade. Though if poverty was the cause of his demotion, it may have been necessary for him to find work. These are not the aspects, however, of Spartan life upon which our sources dwell, so they remain very much in the realm of speculation. Male Spartiates When the original five villages comprising Sparta came together in the Archaic period, their society can have differed little from elsewhere in Greece and the features later picked out as distinctive likely evolved over time, rather than all at once under the shadowy Lycurgus. The million-dollar question is how far these practices evolved out of fear and the necessity of keeping the conquered peoples in check, or because, with the wealth and leisure their conquered territory brought, the elite were able to socialize and educate themselves in a way that further distinguished them from other groups within the polis that the Spartiates were geographically confined to the central hub of the polis clearly made this an easier proposition than in a polis like Athens, where the citizen population was spread out over the whole of Attica. Though there is no question that Athens too aimed for conformity of values across her citizen body. The following summarizes the main elements that were seen by outsiders as distinctive. There was a public education system that started inculcating state values in the male population at about the age of seven. What precisely was on the curriculum is hard to pin down. It is frequently said that its aim was to train the male citizen to become skilled warriors, but neither Xenophon nor Plutarch give us the kind of specifics we would expect if this were its sole aim. They give us glimpses of a regime of endurance training, encouragement of fighting among one another, and stealing, 
of boys and youth being compelled to conform to unspecified standards and being under constant supervision and threat of punishment. The end goal was to instill obedience, self-control, and respect. Plutarch does briefly mention lessons in basic literacy, but because Spartan literacy received so little attention in the sources, scholars debate whether it was taught publicly or privately. Mentorship between adult males and boys was encouraged. Whether these relationships are to be viewed as a form of institutionalized pederasty is uncertain. Many would argue for such reading, citing Plato in support. But this requires dismissing Xenophon's assertion that these relationships were, to the surprise of others, not sexual. While neither Xenophon nor Plutarch can be assumed to be presenting the whole picture, it is notable that their accounts focus much more on the instilling of modes of behavior that, while they are certainly beneficial to military life, are presented more as being essential for civic life, an aim not dissimilar from public practices in other states. The exceptional point about Sparta's practice is that the polis started inculcating these values in its citizens at a young age, and all citizens, wealthy and poor alike, engaged in the same public curriculum. Two key features stand out once adulthood was reached. One is that the Spartiates were forbidden from engaging in trade in order that they could devote themselves to being good citizens. The second is that ideally they would all be accepted into a Sicician, a common mess of probably 15 members. Herodotus had linked this institution to army reforms. Xenophon, by contrast, says it was put in place to prevent slacking off. And Plutarch reports that it was introduced as part of Lycurgus's drive to eliminate the desire for wealth in Sparta. This lack of consensus about the purpose of the Sicitia is striking and likely indicative of each observer imposing his own interpretation on the structure. Membership in a Sicitian ranged from across age groups, which aided inculcation of state values and regulated norms of behavior across generations. Each member was required to contribute a certain amount of food to the common stock, and this came from the estates worked for them by the helots. This requirement seems to have been non-negotiable. Every member of a Sicilian, no matter whether he was wealthy or poor, had to supply the same provisions. Two ways, therefore, that citizenship could be lost were either not completing the education system or not being able to keep up with the mess dues. Citizenship rights may also have been jeopardized if one was deemed to have acted in a cowardly fashion in battle, though our sources are not entirely consistent on this front. Social ostracism was certainly fiercely applied, but the penalties for cowards in Athens were equally, if not more severe, social ostracism and disenfranchisement. Thus, though punishment for cowardice is often highlighted as a peculiar feature of Spartan society and cited as an impetus for the stand taken by the 300 at Thermopylae, it was not an abnormal Greek practice. At some point, and this likely happened over time, public displays of wealth began to be discouraged. As the real gap between rich and poor widened, more superficial measures were added to try to mask this difference and keep the ruling elite visually separated from the other classes. For there is little doubt that there were some perioikoi who were far wealthier than some Spartiates. This tendency is noted by Thucydides when he comments, the Spartans were the first to wear simple clothing, and in other respects, 
Those who possessed more lived as much as possible on equal footing with the masses. And Dominic Xenophon's analysis of the Spartan constitution, in which all male citizens share the same upbringing, wear the same simple clothing, and eat the same rations. The Spartans tellingly call themselves homoi, peers, not equals, as the word is sometimes translated. Women. A recurring point in the discussion so far is how much is unknown and how difficult it is to fill in the gaps. The situation concerning Spartan women is even more complicated. The closest we can come to a Spartan literary source about Spartan women are the beautiful poetic fragments of Alcman. Little connects this world of ethereal, sensory beauty with the negative image typified by the following quotations from Euripides. Not even if she wished could a Spartan maiden be chaste. Deserting their homes with bare thighs and garments loosened, they share with young men the running tracks and rustling places, an unendurable thing to me. The image conjured up by Euripides is the polar opposite to the gender norms presented by male authors for Athenian women and is typically of many contemporary Attic viewpoints. It has been argued that such images, particularly those of being excessively promiscuous and ruling over men, correspond to stereotypical traits heaped on enemy women, particularly non-Greek women, in times of conflict, and is in essence a 5th century Athenian construction. Whether this explanation accounts for the perpetuation of the image in non-Athenian sources is a source of dispute. When we weed out what looks like negative propaganda and sift through what remains, there are still some aspects of the lives of Spartan women that stand out as unusual in the Greek world. The first is that they engaged in state-mandated physical exercise, the aim of which was presented as eugenic. Whether we are entitled to extrapolate from such passages that the state set up as intensive an education program for girls as it did for boys is less certain. And there is certainly no evidence to confirm the criticism above that they exercised alongside boys. A second striking feature, though not wholly exceptional, since it is known that this took place in a similar fashion in Gorton on Crete, is that women could inherit property. The system has been described as universal female inheritance, meaning that within a family, daughters inherited half the amount of landed property their brothers did. If it should happen that a family only had one child and that child was female, then she would inherit all of the property. This situation begs the question, did this give Spartan women an exceptional degree of empowerment? Aristotle certainly thought so, and was highly critical of the situation. Some modern scholars agree and view the situation more positively, but being so demands playing down other evidence that suggests, with the exception of the elite few, Women may have owned land, but they were still subject to family, or rather male, decisions regarding marriage. Even the unusual reproductive arrangements attested by Xenophon are presented as firmly within the control of men. His language quite clearly objectifies the women. Indeed, some think that such practices may have been instituted when it became clear that population numbers were dropping. In a state where male behavior was subject to close scrutiny, despite the criticisms of Aristotle, it is difficult to imagine that women would have been left wholly to their own devices. The cultural conditioning of men would have been less successful had this been so. 
it is more likely that the inculcation of women of desired civic attitudes and the reinforcement of hegemonic structures and values will have been carried out in many of the same ways as they were in other states. Women, no less than men, will have been expected to conform to the polis ideology. Demography, take two. The discussion above of the likely ratios between the constituent groups in the Spartan polis refers, on the whole, to the late archaic early classical period. From the mid-5th century BCE, however, Spartan citizen numbers can be seen slowly but steadily dropping. Herodotus could describe Sparta as having not a few men in the early 6th century, but by the 4th century Xenophon characterizes Sparta as having a small citizen body. The condition of oliganthropia. Aristotle, writing later, goes further and cites oliganthropia as a cause of Sparta's collapse. Long years of citizen losses and war Two strict regulations for becoming and remaining a citizen, a devastating earthquake in circa 464 BCE, which affected Laconia more than Messenia, and prompted the one certain major revolt by the underclasses, and Sparta's property inheritance arrangements are all cited as concurrent causes of the drop in citizen numbers. The state went from being able to field 5,000 hoplites at Plataea in 479 BCE to not quite a thousand at Leuctra in 371 BCE. Measures for increasing the number of offspring, such as those reported by Xenophon, are likely to be responses to this growing crisis, rather than belonging to the murky Lycurgian era. But clearly these measures were too little too late. Aristotle's criticism of property arrangements has been shown to be quite accurate under the terms of universal female inheritance, and his observation that there was a growing gap between rich and poor reminds us that many citizens may have fallen into the category of hypomiones, unable to pay their mess dues and struggling just to subsist. The loss of 400 Spartiates in the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BCE against Thebes must have been an intense blow, and the crisis is well illustrated by the fact that King Agesilus allegedly waived the penalties for those who had acted in a cowardly way in battle. Sparta could not afford any further losses to its citizen body. It's hardly surprising under such circumstances that within a few years, Messenia regained its freedom from Sparta, though notably not on its own, but with considerable help and aid from the Thebans. Summary Many difficulties plague the study of classical Sparta, and almost every point under investigation is highly contested. Our sources are primarily written by outsiders, and disagreement about their agendas leads to remarkably different assessments of the material they present. Thus, Sparta has been and still is easily appropriated as a positive or negative exemplar for the purposes of others. The discussion above shows a few of these, both ancient and modern. Plutarch's communal, cooperative utopia versus the blinkered militaristic state in 300, Aristotle's fierce denunciation of the license of Spartan women versus recent feminist responses, reading this as evidence of empowerment. Can we get past the mirage to what lay beneath? Probably not entirely, but that should not stop us from trying. Recent reassessments of the way in which we read the available sources and judicious use of comparative and theoretical approaches have already complicated, in a good way, the simplistic image of Sparta that held sway for too long. Understanding how Sparta viewed and ruled over the Helots is the crux to understanding 
many other aspects of Spartan life, including the usual features put in place to distinguish the elite and small citizen body of Spartans. Social cohesion among this group was clearly important, and many of the features of Spartan life that stand out seem to have had this aim. Whether, therefore, we are to view these features as exceptional or simply as an extension of general principles followed in other Greek poets is still unresolved, but will continue to be a source of lively debate. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.